Hey everyone. Um, uh, uh, sorry. Good evening, everyone. My name is Siddhi Bhattacharya, and I'm the guest host tonight, along with Elias Khoury. Um, so, yeah, Jason is right now um, busy, so he had us guest host on this really important topic about Kissinger. So, uh, really quickly, first of all, before we officially begin our discussion tonight of um, Hillary Clinton's really close friend, Henry Kissinger, just want to remind everyone that if you're new to the channel, please like and subscribe. And if you are enjoying what you see, make sure to hit the notifications bell as This Is Revolution is constantly adding new episodes, doing cross streams with other channels and adding additional new programming like this one. Um, also, before we start, I wanna let you all know that Everyday Analysis is doing a second edition run of Jason's I Was a Teenage Anarchist. So if you've, if you've been to the website and it says sold out, it's not. Um, and Unfortunately, there will be no champagne room because, uh, quite honestly, I don't know how to work it. So I'm just gonna, we're just gonna be talking for an hour, an hour and 15. And um, yeah, we're just gonna be talking about someone uh, as vile and awful as uh, Henry Kissinger. So, um, hey, Elias, how's everything going? Everything's going good. Thank you for asking. Happy to be here. Yeah. So, Elias is the one of the editors of Hampton Institute, this really amazing uh, proletarian socialist think tank, which you'll also talk about, you know, at the beginning of the show a little bit later. Um, but yeah, so today we're going to be discussing Henry Kissinger, who died on November 29th. I believe he was 100 years old, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, before we get into the discussion between Elias and I, I just want to have a really quick intro here about Kissinger and some of his greatest hits, in a sense. So um, yeah, so Kissinger is uh, one of the most well-known foreign policy intellects and advisors in U.S. modern history. At one point in his time as advisor to Richard Nixon, beginning in 1968, up until Nixon resigning in 1974, Kinger, Kissinger was even seen as a sex icon uh, by the mainstream press. Um, for others, he was actually deemed the rational man keeping Nixon on a tight leash. And also, he was kind of admired by just generally liberals, even those who were against Nixon's um, bombing of Cambodia and other sort of issues. Um, since Nixon, however, Kissinger proved himself rather resilient, managing to remain as a national security advisor for Gerald Ford and eventually becoming someone that even Ronald Reagan turned to during the 1980s, when the U.S. continued to intervene in places like Central America elevating right-wing dictatorships and right-wing killing, uh, killing squads. Um, in the 1990s, however, uh, Kissinger was no longer um, official national security advisor, but he remained um, someone in the national security world through his consultancy firm. And he actually grew very, very close with Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton considered Kissinger a real ally in the formation of his own foreign policy, which included very deadly sanctions against Iraq, which I think led to a couple hundred thousand Iraqis dying, a significant number of them children. And then finally, um, Kissinger, of course, was a inspiration for the really uh, craven group who took us into um, war with Iraq and in the invasion of Iraq. So we'll talk more about this. I mean, um, Cheney, uh, Paul Wolfowitz and um, Donald Rumsfeld were critics of Kissinger, uh, suggesting that he was actually too soft, if you believe that. But in the end, Kissinger himself 
converged with many of their views. In fact, there would be no uh, Cheney in a sense, or rather there'd be no invasion of Iraq if uh, Kissinger didn't exist and managed to have those bombing campaigns and secret bombing campaigns of Cambodia and Laos too. Um, so as the historian Greg Grandin even writes, Kissinger was also the first person to sort of use the tactics of portraying every regime against the United States as akin to the worst of the worst. And this is something he did in the first Gulf War in 1990, 1991, where he um, suggested that Saddam Hussein was the Hitler. And if we didn't stop Saddam Hussein in Kuwait, he'd somehow you know, be similar to the Nazis' rise in the Middle East. And this is something we're seeing right now in terms of how some people have depicted the Palestinians, sort of uh, carte blanche saying everyone who's Palestinian is a Nazi and therefore they need to be eliminated. Um, in the end, the world we live in, sadly, has been a world in which Kissinger lives on. His worldview, politics, even when Kissinger himself wasn't necessarily making the decisions. Um, you know, this goes into, again, uh, Reagan's support for the South African apartheid regime, something that Kissinger liked. This goes into, again, Bill Clinton's sanction regime, which Kissinger supported and felt he needed to do more. And again, like I mentioned, this also goes into the war on terror and now the war in Gaza, which is very, very some, which is very uh, echoing of some of Kissinger's worst tendencies, if there's even any good ones. Um, and finally, Greg Grandin, who is a really important historian whose book I read for this uh, article that uh, Elias and me worked on, uh, had said really acutely when the book was first published and he wrote about Kissinger in 2015, far from disappearing into oblivion, he endures. Brandon writes about Kissinger. And after Kissinger himself is gone, one imagines Kissingerism will endure as well. Um, and so this is what we will be discussing, unpacking for the next hour, hour 15, hour 15, uh, 20 minutes. Um, so yeah, again, thanks Elias for being here. Um, it was a real honor and really fun sort of in a way, even though the subject matter is really uh, depressing to work with you on the article that's on the show notes. But before we even get into that, I do want uh, folks to to get to know uh, you and also the Hampton Institute. So do you mind first introducing yourself and talking a bit more about what the Hampton Institute is and what are some like projects y'all have sort of worked on recently? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like you said, you kind of actually pronounce it the Arabic way because I'm Middle Eastern, Ilias. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sometimes Americans say it more Elias. You can go either way. I really don't have a preference, but yeah, okay. Elias is what I normally go by. And you're right, I am uh, one of the editors at the Hampton Institute. The Hampton Institute, I think you said it earlier, we sort of style ourselves as something of a think tank. Not the worst label, it makes it sound official, right? But a multimedia project is probably probably a little more accurate. We publish articles, we have our own podcast, A Different Lens, hosted by Devin Bowers, check it mm -hmm. out. Uh, we also have our own monthly media aggregator called Left Hook, where we try to bring people the latest and sort of left-wing discourse, progressive discourse. And we're actually working on a book right now, which is mm. a collection of long-form essays. We're compiling it as we speak. And uh, I don't want to give any spoilers, but Sudeep might have a piece in it. And it'll be available for sale once we publish it. So get yourself a copy while they last. It's called The Hampton Reader. We've published editions previously, but believe me when I say, and I swear this isn't shameless, it's the best one yet. Mm. And that's saying something, because we, we've published some really hard-hitting stuff in the past, but we're trying to only go up from there. Uh, we also have a lot of free, emphasis on free, online content coming soon. Definitely be on the lookout for that as well. Uh, maybe maybe the capstone is that we're going to be publishing an interview with the world-famous economist, mm. a real superstar, Dr. Clara Maté. It's about her latest book, The Capital Order, which discusses austerity. That's coming soon. 
well the interview is coming soon the book came out last year definitely get yourself a copy of that as well it's it's amazing she's she's phenomenal and i can't say enough good things about her and her work uh, and then we also have a bunch more articles coming soon not interviews they cover international relations from haiti all the way to palestine which is obviously the big issue right now especially for me i'm, I'm palestinian myself we have a progressive critique of academia coming all good stuff so keep an eye on the hampton institute and here, here is the shameless part. Visit our website, hamptonthink.org, and follow us on social media. We're at Hampton Think. Hampton is in Hampton Institute. Hampton Think on all platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Blow those up. Last thing, and uh, actually it reminds me, I need to say this. What makes Hampton special is our founder, Colin Jenkins, loves the idea. He's obsessed with this idea of the, no disrespect, of the organic intellectual, Gramsci, mm. right? Comes from Gramsci's work. Even though the Hampton Institute is named after Fred Hampton, but our organization's mission from its founding was to platform everyday people. Why? So they can comment on their conditions. And we have a sizable following, over 200,000 followers across all social media, plenty of website hits as well. So people read our content. And uh, if, if, if you ever write for us, which I'm gonna get to in a second, you won't be screaming to the void. Nothing right. against that, of course, it's therapeutic, but people will actually <laughs> consume your work, which I hope sweetens the deal. Now, look at this. You, speaking to the audience right now, literally anyone and everyone can submit pitches and drafts to the Hampton Institute. We don't gatekeep. If your idea is a good fit, we'll work with you extensively to maximize its quality and eventually publish it. And here, I'm going to sweeten the deal even more. We pay for all original content. Right. I need to stress that because I know under capitalism, especially, people have struggled to make ends meet, and I wouldn't expect anybody to do work for free. Right. We, we try to acknowledge that. Even though our finances are tight, we try to give every original contributor at least something. If that interests you, send a pitch, a draft, or even just an email inquiry. We're always happy to respond to people's emails to the following email address. You ready? Hampton is in Hampton Institute, editor as in my position, at gmail.com. Hampton editor at gmail.com. Hit us up. I can't wait to hear from you all and hopefully work with you as well. Sorry, I know I went on for a while, but there's a lot of exciting stuff happening at Hampton. Just wanted the people to know about it. No, that's why it was important to have you on because um, we need, um, like just with the show, we need a really, really strong bench of left-wing socialist, Marxist um, intellectuals and spaces for people to be intellectuals. And I'm really glad you brought up Gramsci because, again, you know, Yes, you don't have to be an official academic to be an academic. Um, we know that there's a lot of people out there who love to read, love to learn, who have those skills or want to hone those skills in. And I think, again, my experience with Hampton has been pretty pretty great. Like when we worked on our article together, there was edits there, there was a way of improving the piece. And I also, even though I have a background in writing, it, it really improved my writing too. So I, I also encourage everyone to do that and take a take a stab at it just you know send a pitch or or just go to the hampton institute's website its twitter page its instagram which we'll also again mention at the end of the show to look up the amazing things they're doing frankly because like i said you mentioned claire mate right she, claire mate, yeah. Yeah, she's incredible and her history lessons on austerity and and the history of austerity and its connection to fascism is not only like a really important history lesson but very much teaches us about things going on now, right? So I, I really am really grateful for the Hampton Institute being what it is. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and just a little bit about me. I think some of you guys have seen me before in some episodes about Asian American politics on solidarity. I'm a doctoral candidate in political science at Rutgers. 
And I also write for very similar outlets, as does Elias. Um, I, we both have written for Jacobin, uh, written for uh, Hampton Institute, of course, and a, and a couple of other really important left-wing spaces, which we'll also reference at the end of the show. Um, but yeah, so we're here to talk about Henry Kissinger, um, the man of the hour, of the year, of the decades, unfortunately. Um, but first off, I just want to maybe get your insights or your first thoughts when you heard about him, you know, passing away, I think late November, November 29th, like what were your first impressions or first thoughts running through your head when he, when he heard the news that he actually died? Yeah, it's a great question. I personally never, ever celebrate people's deaths. I'm right. not by right. That's not me. Even if I was that kind of person, what was there to celebrate? He won. I hate to say it. I get yeah. no joy out of saying it, but he won. He did the damage, which we're going to go into in detail in just a minute here, and died peacefully and revered at 100 years old. Yeah. That's the extent of my thoughts. Did, did you have anything to add? No, I, I feel it's like very bittersweet. I mean, a part of me, to be honest, got swept up in this, in, in, every, in people's joys on Twitter and social media, uh, very pent up joys, because, you know, every year someone else who is really good and innocent passes on whether personal or just you know broader broader celebrity type and then this guy keeps um living and not only that which we'll talk about in terms of his um how he celebrated but um i believe he was even um given a really big celebration right right before his death like his 100th birthday came up Do you he had know a few different celebrations that? actually one wasn't enough for him i guess right so you said there was multiple celebrations even yeah, yeah. You, which one was it? It was there was one at the New York City Library in Manhattan, I believe, right? Yes, that's correct. Mm-hmm. And some of the people there, right? It was Samantha Powers even was there. And Samantha then, Powers, I think Michael Bloomberg, if I'm not mistaken, right. don't quote me. I think it's in the piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John Kerry, if I'm not mistaken, James Baker, who wow. like Kissinger was also a former Secretary of State in Republican right. administration. So uh, yeah, I A-listers, not to give him too much credit, but A-listers. Right. No, that's, I mean, I think to your point, I mean, I, I am very mixed about it. I'm glad someone like him is off the earth, but at the same time, like you said, he's sort of won, unfortunately. I think that's the reality of it too, like, which we'll get into, like all the crimes he's committed and not just him, but people around him as well, he got away with it and he was able to still live a pretty luxurious life. And I bring up Samantha Powers because this is also someone like Kissinger, as we'll talk about, it's not like his light show dimmed in any way. He was constantly feted by the most powerful, even someone as recent as Samantha Powers. I know she has a long career of being a quote unquote human rights advocate, but she's someone who's like more of a recent celebrity in that sense. And even for her, she felt like obligated to go and show uh, her uh, loyalty and appreciation of this really awful man. So he's not one of those types who kind of like lost his luster. He was always sort of seen and elevated by almost every uh, cycle of news, national security advisor, celebrity type. So that's that's another thing about his legacy. But so, we'll, and we'll talk more openly about what that means and of course what the left should do and learn from his life. But yeah, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, just again, his greatest hits in a way, in a very perverse way. Um, you know, he had a pretty pretty substantive career as a national security advisor, secretary of state, but even out of power, he was very influential. But still, there are some things about him that people really should know up and up front and center. And one of these is uh, the coup in Chile and his bombing campaign of Cambodia and, and Laos, 
uh, I was wondering if you wanted to take that on first and talk a little bit about those uh, hotspots that he got involved in. Yeah, yeah, I could go into both those. I will say you, you might be asking the wrong guy. I'm, I'm no scholar. That's all you, right? Even though you won't admit it because you're too humble. But check this out. Maybe I can tee it up and let you take over from there. Sure, sure, sure. Henry Kissinger, big picture, died earlier this year, like you said, lived to 100. Former Secretary of State, for people who didn't know, former National Security Advisor as well. Had those, he held those big, big positions within the State Department, right? Carpet bombed Cambodia for years until 1973. Did untold damage. And doing that level of destruction was something he pushed for. He was adamant about it. He would not be denied. That's the type of guy he was. The reason I say 1973, you're going to right. see in a second, that year is about to become really, really significant. So keep it in your head. I'm going to repeat it a few more times. Then when Kissinger got done destroying Cambodia, Right. By the way, the late, great Anthony Bourdain, who I love, I used to watch his show all the time. Great dude, rest in peace. He said something about this. He's more than just a food critic, right? Although he didn't right. criticize much. He was really positive. Such a nice guy. But check this out. Anthony Bourdain, after visiting Cambodia, said you'll never want to stop punching Henry <laughs> Kissinger in the face for what he did. Those are his words, not mine, right? I condemn violence in all forms. But right. Anthony Bourdain was never a violent guy. He was just... Right moved to that point by the sheer destruction Kissinger unleashed. And when Kissinger got done raising Cambodia, again in 1973, right. he moved on to his next project, which you mentioned, Chile. Mm -hmm. This guy had an unquenchable thirst for terror. That's just what it was. And later that year, so 1973, Kissinger overthrows Salvador Allende, right. a great leader who had flaws. He's not perfect. Nobody is. Right. But uh, you, it, it's hard to call him anything short of, of an economic miracle worker. He right. cut inflation in half right. while more than doubling the rate of GDP growth. And this wasn't the sort of nonsense, fictitious growth you see in the U.S. where it's all speculation, crypto garbage, finance right. capital. This was real growth. Wages grew in real terms, not just nominal terms, by 22.3%. I have the numbers here in front of me. He grew the labor share of GDP. What does that mean? It's especially important for us and people watching this show. The share of the pie workers had went from 52 to 62%. Before you say it doesn't sound like a lot, remember this was all in the first year he was in office. Mm -hmm. Right. If Biden did one tenth of this, he'd already be on Mount Rushmore. Right. That's who Henry Kissinger killed, overthrew and killed. And he put a mass murdering fascist, Augusto Pinochet, in his place. But check this out. The reason I said to keep the year 1973 in your head, here's why it's especially significant. That's the year Henry Kissinger won the Nobel Peace Prize. Right. Forget diplomacy, forget diplomatic awards. That's the most prestigious award, period, known to man. Right. Right. Flush off a productive year of slaughter and mayhem. Right. The powers that be, right? The elite were heralding this guy as the right. world number one, not in the top ten, number one peacemaker. And that goes to show, despite his obvious crimes, from the beginning of his life to the end, right. Kissinger was embraced by the mainstream. They loved him, and yeah. that is precisely why we need to make sure people know right. the truth about him and his terrible legacy. Right. Did you have something to add? No, I think, I mean, I think the way you connected it to is very, again, very relevant to what, what we've seen again. I think Obama, I know we've talked about this before, but Obama got the Nobel Prize uh, before he really, really, uh, I mean, he was president by then, but it was very early on in his career. And um, as we would later know, even though he's not a Henry Kissinger, he did continue a drone program. He and the rest of NATO destroyed Libya. Um, and there was a countless other examples of just overreach right, into other parts of the world. I think AFRICOM became stronger under him, which is uh, an attempt by the U.S. to have their tentacles into uh, Africa. 
Um, but it's very similar, right? Like what you're right, what you're raising are really important points, not not just about the person, but about the nature of American foreign policy and the media establishment, right? Like for them to, and I have the numbers here uh, in terms of the bombing campaign too. So to add to what you're saying, the bombing campaign lasted from 69 to 73 and about uh, over 100,000 uh, Cambodians or uh, ethnic Khmer uh, people were murdered right? 100,000 alone. And numbers could actually be higher because we're also not, you know, counting those who might have uh, starved from the campaign, others who may have been killed inadvertently through forces that were able to rise up in power. Some people rightfully connect the rise of Pol Pot to the bombing campaign, right? Because he kind of cleared out the field for real opposition and allowed this mass murder to come through as well. So one could argue those have to do with Kissinger. But also in Laos, right? So Laos is another nation, part of Southeast Asia. And um, uh, again, this book that I'm referencing, it's called Kissinger's Shadow by Greg Grandin. And it's published in 2015, but I'm not really, uh, I'm pretty sure the numbers are still kind of relatively the same numbers, I'll I'll tell you. So not only did um, Kissinger and Nixon Nixon have a secret bombing campaign that did all, all that damage on Cambodia, they also did something similar to Laos. And um, I believe the number is, yes, in Laos, there still remains nearly 80 million, 80 million unexploded, unexploded cluster bombs, 80 million. This is uh, around the time of 2015. There's no way 80 million just went away. There's maybe slightly less than that, but these are unexploded cluster bombs. And what this means is when you're in a society like Laos, which is still predominantly farmers, agricultural, people have to work the land, uh, they're literally still dying from bombs that we, you know, uh, had buried into the soil that didn't explode. And that's another uh, aspect of Kissinger's terror. And just to really add a little bit about the other things he did in other parts of the world, um, Kissinger um, supported General Suharto, who was the coup leader of Indonesia. Um, He had a coup in Indonesia earlier during uh, Kennedy's run as president, but he was still in power then. Kissinger went ahead and was leaning into that administration to go ahead and even have more damage in the surrounding area because uh, Suharto, he wanted to invade East Timor and he did with uh, Kissinger's uh, green light. And another scary number about that, from the invasion alone, just the invasion, which happened in 1975 where Kissinger was under the Ford administration, uh, around 102,000 Timorese had been killed out of a total population of 700,000. That is that is really insane. And then finally, saying finally is kind of, we'll talk more about all his crimes, but um, I'm Indian American, I'm Bengali American. I don't necessarily have a direct connection to Bangladesh. So I'm not out here trying to say I was directly affected, but this is very important to me to mention that he also supported, so during that time um, around uh, 1971, I believe, um, yes, uh, Pakistan was basically, there was a West Pakistan and an East Pakistan divided between, with India in the middle. Um, at that point in time, in 1971, the Bengali speaking portion of East Pakistan wanted to create their own nation based on language. And at that same time, the Pakistani military was, was pretty strong in civil society. And again, Kissinger gave the military aid over and over again because they were anti-Soviet. And ultimately, when Bengali-speaking people said we wanted to be independent, uh, the Pakistani military went ahead, 
uh, did mass repression, deadly repression, and um, also deputized many extremists to carry on their own attacks, part of these extremist militias. Kissinger knew what was happening. Literally, U.S. ambassadors and people working at the embassy cabled the White House about what was going on. They actually felt very torn about it because they were seeing Bengalis being rounded up in front of them. Kissinger did not say anything. And of course, again, like I said, military aid, not, not, not just financial, kept flowing. So these are some of the things he actually did while he was uh, part of the White House administration. Um, is there anything else you want to add to that or anything else you feel like I left out? No, nothing comes to mind. I think you summarized it beautifully. It, it was truly a reign of terror and his tentacles reach seemingly every corner of the earth. Yes. One of the things that makes him kind of an exceptional figure. Yes. Well, that's actually, let's talk about that. Like, how do, how should we relate American foreign policy to our understanding of Kissinger? Because, you know, it's like same thing with Trump, right? Like, there's there's truth in the fact that Trump is different than previous people, but there's also truth in the fact that he's not an aberration, right? Like, it would be very odd to say he just plummeted from the sky and he's not American at all. Is that how we should also view Kissinger in a way? Like he's both, like you said, exceptional in some ways, but also very much a product of very important tendencies that already existed within the U.S. establishment and beyond? Like how would you characterize Kissinger? No, absolutely. I think that's a good comparison and it hit the nail on the head. One thing we did in the piece was we tried not to overstate Kissinger's influence. I know a second ago I just said he was an exceptional figure and he was in a lot of ways that we'll get into. Right. We shouldn't overstate his influence in this sense. Kissinger, like you said, was hardly a clean break right. from the foreign policy bureaucrats of years past, right? right? If the ruling class didn't think this guy would play ball, he would have never risen that far. He was Secretary right. of State, National Security Advisor. I mean, he was him. He was him. So let's be clear about that. However, Henry Kissinger was still significant because he was particularly hawkish particularly unapologetic, and that opened the floodgates. It stripped away any pretense of humanity or morality from American foreign policy making. And here's what that's done. It spawned, and we discuss this in the piece, successors who are even crazier than Kissinger was. The right. Mike Pompeo's of the world, right. the Nikki Haley's yeah. of the world, right. particular is something, I think she's really similar to Kissinger in a lot of ways that we might get into later, not just because she's never met a war she didn't like, I mean, that would make right. her no different from John McCain and a lot of other people, right? But also because the media totally sanitizes her. Right. It's really, it's stomach churning, I would say. And she's supposed to be the moderate post base of the Republican Party, right? But her foreign policy is about as radical as you can get. And I know some people embrace the term radical AOC, right? Be, be yeah. Radical. I don't use that term. Right. I consider myself reasonable. When I call somebody radical, it's not a compliment at all. What's crazy is even Ed Krasenstein. You know, mm. the Krasenstein brothers, they used to be organizations on resistance Twitter. Now they're not. They, they lost all the clout, maybe for the better. Right. They were the standard bearers of resistance Twitter back during like the 2020 presidential primaries. Big time Democrats, DNC shows, right? There's probably money behind them. I, I don't want to say, say any, I want to be circumspect. Maybe, maybe. I'm just a right. theory. But check this out. Ed Krasenstein recently said after a Republican debate, he was impressed with Nikki Haley and that he'd vote for her over Biden if she was a nominee. Remember, this guy was the he was the guy on resistance Twitter. He's supposed to be in the tank for the Democrats. 
saying he might vote for her. Now, obviously, she's not going to be right. for all sorts of reasons. And uh, But here's the bottom line, because I, I don't want it to seem like I didn't answer your question. Kissinger, for, this is his impact. He further radicalized American foreign policymaking, and that ushered in a wave, a tidal wave of successors. Right. Nikki Haley is one of them who are even more radical than he was, which is saying a lot. Right. No, no, that's exactly, I mean, this goes back to a lot of American history generally. Like, again, I really like Greg Grandin's work. He has another book, um, The Myth, I forgot the title of it, but it's, it's the one he won an award for recently. Um, and there he also makes a similar claim with Kissinger. Like, there's a tendency sometimes, even sometimes on the left, to view certain characters as exceptional exceptional as you know the worst of the worst and and then there's also a tendency to just view them as normalized like just uh, more of the same and of course we're trying to say it's it's both it's not really a very exciting answer but I, it's the correct one right and and just to give a little bit more background on kissinger he was a faculty at harvard in the 50s prior to being plucked and being part of the national security advisor first and then secretary of state second with nixon and his story of his come up is actually very indicative of the foreign policy space. So, so to your point, Kissinger wasn't like, he wasn't treated as fringe, like you mentioned. Otherwise, he wouldn't have found himself in the halls of power. But even with some of his uh, comrades, um, ironically, in the foreign policy world, he certainly set himself apart in many ways. One of those ways, like you said, he stripped away the pretense of what American power should look like to the rest of the world. So one of the things that Kissinger uh, did, and something that TIR talks about a lot, and other people like Mac McNannis, I believe, he talks a lot about the, the right wing and how postmodern they are in some sense. So Kissinger, unlike some of the conservative and liberal uh, theologians of foreign policy, he didn't really even bother with the substance of it. Like he actually was very anti-stats. He was anti-numbers. Again, the reason why I'm mentioning it is because the people who ran the numbers were still very craven. Like, let's see how many people we killed or whatever. But he was just anti that even. He was not a pencil pusher. He actually had this weird postmodern conservative feeling, almost Hegelian type of like spirit of American power it needs to live on. And how it lives on? Through power. So it's like a loop. The only way America is seen as strong is when we exude strength. And how do we exude strength? We strip away any pretense of any even justification sometimes. It's just about law and order and being the cop. So to your point, that really did open the door for many of those types to come in. So I don't even have to bother sometimes with strategic reasons. I mean, one of the things that Kissinger did during his period of time in Nixon's administration was, yes, he had a detente with the Soviets in a way, but he also played up inaccurately. And he knew this, I think, like he didn't care about the facts. Inaccurately, he played up the fears of a Soviet empire, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And that is important to note because that's what Reagan did, right? Reagan literally, he, he criticized Kissinger, called him soft, but in his own two uh, administrations or two terms, he was unfathomably uh, paranoid <laughs> about the Soviets, like to, to such a height that even Kissinger in the beginning felt uncomfortable, but later on converged. So again, to your point, he really stripped away the pretense and allowed for some people to come in who didn't even bother to use the right terms or even try to be pencil pushers with a, you know, a folder of facts. It was more like, I'm here because America's losing. How do I know America's losing? Because I just know. And we're weak. Why are we weak? 
oh, we allowed Vietnam to beat us. We allowed Granada to have a revolution, hence we invade. Like there's no sense of sovereignty. And the final thing that he did that was really important, secrecy. That is something he did that was a little bit more different from his predecessors. So during the Cambodia uh, bombing campaign, he actually asked people to burn documents tied to that. Not saying it never happened before, but in the post-World War II era, I think he was the one who did it the most. And we've seen that repeated since then. I mean, how many drone strike campaigns we find out about later? How many of these instances of overreach we find out, if at all? So that's another thing that he did that was, let's say, inspiring to a certain uh, circle of uh, psychos in the foreign policy world. I don't know if you wanted to add anything else to that, but. No, no, nothing to add. So I think the other thing you mentioned that's really important is, again, his influence on the foreign policy world now. You mentioned a little bit about Mike Pompeo. You mentioned a little bit about, you know, um, uh, you know, other cast of characters. Taking a step back from that, too, maybe we can talk about why does it matter, though? Right. It's kind of connecting to that question. But why why should it matter? You know, that we, we, we think through Kissinger's time and we actually take seriously what he did. Like, why does it matter? Talk about Kissinger's influence. That's an excellent question. I think I think it matters to build and maintain public pressure so that at the very least, at the very least, we can curb Kissinger's successors' worst excesses. Kissinger died, right? It's not really about him anymore. Right. Rather, it's about acknowledging, as we've been discussing so far, it's about acknowledging the collective mistake we all made, right? A lot, a lot of people are guilty of this, of not holding his feet to the fire while he was still around, while he was still wreaking havoc throughout the world. And it's about acknowledging that we can't let today's crop of war criminals, right. successors to Kissinger, get away with it. Right. Kissinger today, post-mortem, again, I don't celebrate anybody's death, rest in peace, retains symbolic value, but it's important nonetheless. No, I think that's, um, yeah, and I was wondering, um, well, so when I'm thinking about the question too, I do think it's a, uh, it's connected to two pieces that we've kind of gone over a little bit. One is whether or not Kissinger was firmly ensconced in in administrative power, because again, since the 80s or since the 90s, he technically wasn't. He was still a major influence. So number one, that's the main thing. Like just to go over some of his greatest hits again. Um, so during the 1980s, Reagan did have issues with Kissinger, like I've mentioned. He did view him as soft. <laughs> Uh, which is crazy, but I guess compared to Reagan, he was. Um, but again, he took up the language of Kissinger too, eventually. And he actually became very close. Why? Because Kissinger, A, he always wanted to be close to power. So he was very willing to sometimes change his perception of people. In fact, uh, up until Nixon's time, he was seen as a as a as either a Democrat or a liberal even. He was um, on the Hubert Humphrey front. But then when he saw in 68, the convention mayhem outside the dnc he began to like rue that and that's why he was very eager to flip sides so that's one part of his character but reagan if people remember he did a lot of destabilizing around the world himself he invaded granada um which was having its social revo socialist revolution it's a tiny island and literally u.s marines went in there claiming to protect u.s interests no matter how vague and it was a disaster for the granadan people like literally they stripped away all the programs that were working in a short period of time um, 
Reagan also destabilized Central America. He supported uh, right-wing governments there, right-wing guerrilla squads. And finally, Reagan did a lot actually to be hands-off with the apartheid South African regime. Um, and this is also something that Kissinger wanted. So one of the things he really liked about, um, one of the things he really promoted during his time as security advisor was having better relationships with uh, African, with South African apartheid and what was known as Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe at the time, which was a white minority rule government. And he actually even encouraged them, the South African regime, white mercenaries to invade uh, the rest of Southern Africa. So we're talking about Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, which is further up north, but at least Angola. And um, if people don't know, Angola and these areas were actually still uh, parts of the Portuguese empire. And unlike even other European empires and American, the Portuguese were unwilling to transition into like an implicit type of rule through financial capital. They were very brutal and they wanted to cling to those colonies and we helped them. Uh, not we, but Kissinger helped them. And the only thing that stopped Angola from being captured by South Africa was uh, Castro and him sending um, uh, a pretty significant number of Cuban soldiers to do that. Um, and then finally in the 1990s, like I said, the sanction regime that uh, Clinton took part in, we're talking about preventing basic resources from getting into Iraq. We're talking about hospitals losing fuel, much like what's going on in Gaza. This led to, again, I think hundreds of thousands of deaths, many of them uh, children actually. And then finally the war, the war on terror. Um, so, and again, to the other point, um, to what you're saying, this pattern can repeat, right? If we don't take lessons from it, it's it's repeating in front of us. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about, about that connection. I know you mentioned it, but maybe you can connect it to like these other craven figures like Mike Pompeo, Donald Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney. Like, what do you mean when when we're seeing the same pattern of people like Kissinger uh, not really being held into account? Yeah, I think you know that's a great question, and. I think it's something we kind of capture in not only the title of our piece, but the title of the stream, which is that what else would you expect? Right. The rot is the foreign policy establishment. We're very deliberate with naming, again, both the piece and the stream. It's a feature, not a bug. Right. And that's why to solve the problem, it's going to take nothing short of a complete rehaul of the entire system. Right. We can get into that in more detail in a minute. But honestly, one thing I wanted to ask you is you're listing all these terrible things Kissinger did abroad, right? But I think we need to even take a step back and convince people, why should you care? Yeah. Americans here living in the U.S. or even just in the imperial core, if you want to use that phrase generally, why should they care about what their countries are doing elsewhere? Why does it matter? And I, I can take a stab at it, but I'd like to throw it to you first. You're the scholar here, right? I'm just a guy. <laughs> No, you're a scholar too. <laughs> um, let's see. Um, well, there's a couple of reasons. And I think we've talked about this um, in relation to the left, which we can also bring into this. So why should you care? One, um, as leftists, as socialists, as Marxists, um, caring about international issues has been our tradition, right? Um, Marx you know, in the Communist Manifesto talked about working people uh, across the world unite. He didn't say working people of England unite. He didn't say working people of Germany unite. He really believed in internationalism, even though he didn't take seriously colonialism just yet, and he would later on, but he always had that, 
you know, in his core. And the same thing with other revolutionaries, Lenin, Rosa Luxemburg, um, more recent ones, Thomas Sankara, right? We're talking about a real tradition here. So if you are someone who's a serious Marxist, progressive, you know, and you want to be part of that tradition, it's there, right? You, you really can't, I, I think you can't call yourself that if you're not hewing to that tradition. And then secondarily is the strategic realm, right? Um, having, it's complicated, right? Because like, you know, revolution is hard. So I'm not suggesting you need to have like all the countries line up perfectly to have a socialist revolution, but you do eventually need that. Um, and one of the reasons why is that the other side thinks globally. They think internationally. The capitalist class thinks internationally, right? Um, in fact, it's it's seen in Kissinger's world, right? Nixon and Kissinger, they weren't stuck on just America. They were actually wheeling and dealing with various allies on the ground, the worst kind, but they were willing to work with others to create a capitalist dominated world. Of course, one that would be led by them, but of course, one that would be beneficial for their allies in Japan, their allies in Iran at the time, and so on. So they do that. And why do they do that? Because it creates a bigger field for them to maneuver. So even for even for those of us in America, if we were to win socialism here um, in, in the belly of the beast, uh, capitalists in a capitalist dominated world, if there's no other networks of socialists that we've built up until that point, they can just flee to another part of the globe, uh, regenerate, regroup, and come back with a vengeance. I mean, that's what they did many times over. Uh, Franco, Franco Smitterrand, I think he's the president of France, right, in the early 80s, I believe. He was a socialist yeah, elector. Yes, socialist president of France. He came in with a big agenda, sort of, and immediately uh, he couldn't do anything because the capitalist class in France uh, just moved their investments to other parts of Europe. So mm -hmm. it's moral and strategic, right? So, yeah, I was wondering if, uh, you know, if you wanted to add to that or if you feel the same way or there's something else you wanted to, wanted to say about the reasons for why the left should care. Yeah, I think you made a lot of really important points there. And I, I, I would go over simpler, uh, even simpler than that, even though all the points you made were valid, don't get me wrong. But the question being, why does American foreign policy matter? Because as we've outlined so far in this show, it unleashes massive death and destruction throughout yeah. the world. Cambodia, Chile, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Palestine, historically and right now. There's a genocide right now going yeah. on. The U.S. is aiding and abetting it. Better foreign policy is a worthwhile goal because it would save lives, and that's right. it. It would reduce suffering. It would promote human flourishing. It would keep families together, preserve people's health. Right, right now, Israel is bombing hospitals with the blessing of the United States. Right. If that yeah. horrifies you, you're admitting we need to contest right. the foreign policy. We need to care about it. It's that simple, and there's so much at stake. We can't afford to cede this terrain and just focus on domestic issues, right. which are important, don't get me wrong, but not the whole game. And the late, great Michael Brooks said it best, mm -hmm. an amazing guy, rest in peace, but here's what he said that's so true. I think he was critiquing Ta-Nehisi Coates, who I don't know much about, so I'm just right, right. going to say anything further. But here's what Michael Brooks said. If you don't connect your domestic politics to a global critique of imperialism, of capitalism, of war, of empire, of hegemony, all the things people discuss on shows like these, you're doing it wrong. You're right. doing it all wrong. It's just that simple. I know. It's um Michael Brooks was also like really quickly about him. He was really good at talking about international issues, both at the moral center of it, um, and at the same time strategically. Like I think 
one of the first things he really, or one of the main things he's known for, rightly so, is his emphasis on Brazil, right? I believe when he was really, uh, it was around the time when Lula was having that political persecution of him. It was Michael Brooks and maybe a couple of others who saw through that and really emphasized why leftists in the United States should care. And he was right because, well, not only because Brazil is such a big economy itself, but if you see the terrain, like you're saying, even to people in Brazil, far right people in Brazil, they'll go out of their way to create connections here as well. And we saw that too, like Trump and Bolsonaro were close friends. They were getting COVID together very often. Uh, <laughs> that was something they love to do together, just get COVID. Uh, <laughs> but that was like, that's what they do. The other side does that often. Um, and I think Michael Brooks understood that. And I think the other thing that Michael Brooks understood is again, the legacy of the left. Right. Like it's it's not new. Like if anyone out there is suggesting that the left gets sidetracked into internationalism, that misses the point. And I think Michael Brooks is one of those people who understood that you can do both. It's I mean, it's difficult. Uh, but guess what? Winning socialism is difficult anywhere. So you're going to have to do the work in explaining things. Right. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up Michael Brooks as well. Like he's a really uh, he was one of the few people I really think had a really good way of breaking things down internationally for a pretty wide wide audience right and you, you know I, I know he was a big influence for you um, yeah he definitely was and just one more word on michael brooks yeah one thing i really loved about him and his show the michael brooks show and there are still episodes on youtube i actually yeah. checking them out if you never have he was really a special person taken from us too soon right yeah check this out he cutting analysis no doubt he also brought joy and fun and laughter yes. and play and comedy yeah. to the left yes yes which, especially in our internet age where everybody has the attention span of goldfish, right, right. that's so important to keep people engaged so that you can drill home those big points that right. Sudeep said, connecting the global to the to the domestic and all that great stuff. Right. No, and I think it's a good time to also talk about, and, you know, like you said perfectly, when we don't also deal with these issues effectively and in time, we are left with situations like Palestine, right? Like, again, it's it's similar to Kissinger. It's not like what the Israeli state is doing is not unique, right? Like what Kissinger did wasn't unique. Like, for instance, Suharto, again, he was already in power because the United States gave the green light for him to do a coup in the in the 60s earlier. So or yeah, in the 60s under Kennedy's first um, first term or first and only term. So it's not unique. Um, what Israel is doing to the Palestinians is not unique. In 2014, they also had another uh, bombing campaign that led to thousands of deaths. But what's happening, though, and what's been happening since the 70s is that we've seen somewhat of a retreat by by the left from the national international stage, both uh, from a set of options, like people choosing to be that way, but also because we've lost some institutional power, right? Like the Soviet Union's not around. As flawed as they were, they did provide resources to different liberation movements. They did put a check on the United States in many cases, right? Uh, they gave a lot of support to those countries fighting South Africa at the time. Uh, Cuba as well was way stronger back then. Um, and now we're seeing, a, we're seeing a world in which Palestine is abandoned, right? Like the left hasn't been doing some of the work necessary. And so Palestine effectively is abandoned. And we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of that, like you're, you said, uh, being shouldered literally by the Palestinians. Like we're talking about, I think the numbers are now 16,000 plus dead. I think around 7,000, 8,000 children, um, not to mention the 200 plus died in the West Bank. So yeah, this is also, 
it has real real effects and also Saudi Arabia's embargo of Yemen. These are both US allies and examples of US foreign policy gone amok. Yeah, no no question about it. Yeah, and I guess going off of that question too is the um is the the idea now about I have a question here about you know following why we should care. I guess also, do you feel there's been more critiques though, or do you feel there's been, do you think there has been more of a swinging back to the inter to the focus on foreign policy by people on the left, or do you still think there is a lack of that on the left? I definitely think there's a renewed interest with everything that's going on in Palestine, and arguably even before that with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. One thing I will say though, and I actually really want to get your thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people of a certain persuasion accuse Western leftists, maybe American leftists especially, of not really caring about international issues. And I know earlier we made the case why you should. Right. But at least in the circles I've run in, I've I've never noticed people just sort of disregarding the international sphere. But there are a lot of people I respect who who do feel that the American leftists, Western leftists generally perhaps, haven't paid enough attention to international issues. I haven't noticed that personally. Again, maybe it's just the circles I run in. But I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that because it, it's definitely a point of controversy. Yeah, I, I don't have a straight answer, frankly, because like, you know, it's hard to even judge what the left is sometimes, right? Like, so for me, um, and also really quickly, I think this is a good plug for DSA in a way. Um, you and I connected through the International Committee of the DSA. Uh, we have a comrade there who got us connected because both of us are writers and we have very similar politics. And so he said, why not get together and do, you know, essentially propaganda and clarity work, right? You know, <laughs> writing about things. So I don't I mean, like that word, but yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is what it is. I mean, it's fair, but I, let's say educational work. Um, so, but to that effect, I think, so this, the DSA is also, I guess, a good example of what I think here, because within the DSA, you can find pockets of people who have a point of view where they say international is totally separate and they're not saying we'll never ever focus on it but there'll be a long road ahead where we'll eventually get there but right now we need to focus on the bread and butter of Mm -hmm. domestic issues that does exist in the dsa space it certainly does like i've come across it i've seen people write about it in that way sometimes it's very confusing to me when i hear that from socialists sometimes because like i said there's a tradition that takes these things together, right? And, I, and also I wanna say like, I think you and I agree, we're, we're not suggesting you start off organizing with everyone on the same international front. We're not saying that, but for both of us, it's inevitably a goal. And I think for some people that it's like a second, third rate issue, right? Which is not what we want. But at the same time, like with the IC committee or the international committee, if people follow the DSA's international committee, they're doing pretty strong work on advocating for an anti-US empire perspective uh, to hundreds of thousands of people and members included. And um, they've had really strong lines about Cuba. They've had strong lines about like, you know, you know, the embargo on Cuba, the need to lift it. They've had strong lines about this, Palestine, and how it's ridiculous we're sending billions and billions of dollars to a far right government in Israel that is referring to Palestinians as Amalek and as almost like just monsters to be destroyed. There's no humanity there. So there is that example. I guess simply, I don't think there's one line that dominates. 
so yeah, I, I agree with you in that sense. I don't think it's all Western leftists who are just wandering around, don't giving a shit. I don't think that's true. Um, but I do see some people kind of holding firm on this idea that internationalism is not as important, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, no, makes sense. Makes sense. I take that perspective seriously. And and also, I guess it runs to, I mean, I guess, what's your take then on about like, because we've had discussions about this before. And I think you mentioned how you've been kind of like, happy to see some examples of what's going on in terms of the resistance to to Israeli state propaganda here. Um, mm -hmm. I was wondering if you want to talk about that, like those kind of positive examples you've seen of bottom-up organizing maybe. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's an excellent question. Uh, uh, where do I even begin? Uh, I, I would just say that that there are, and this is something promising and it's, it's momentum that we should def definitely build on, there are a heartening number of leftists currently working through this very problem of not just specifically combating Israeli propaganda and the genocide that's happening in Palestine, but crafting a U.S. progressive foreign policy in general. I include you as being someone contributing to that effort. I include parts of the Hampton team in that. Right. I would include groups like the Quincy Institute. I think Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft is their full name. I would include them in that. And if you haven't heard of them, I'd be shocked if people listening to this show haven't because they're superstars, but definitely check them out. I would include listeners of the show who may not hold official positions, but nonetheless dedicate their time, dedicate their energy to thinking through these important issues. That level of grassroots engagement, as you put it, is incredibly powerful. And for those who feel powerless, you're not. If you were, they wouldn't try so hard to censor you. It's that simple. No, I agree. And I think like um, Students for Justice in Palestine, I know they're getting hit hard nowadays, but they're still, you know, doing rallies, organizing. They have tons of support. Jewish Voices for Peace have been doing incredible work. Um, I've gone to a couple of rallies and it's really incredible. Like you're seeing a cross section of people. You're seeing a cross section of, you know, uh, different, I wouldn't say political parties officially, but different groups associated. Like I think in Philly, there was, I think even the, the Sunrise Movement was part of some of the rallies, I believe. You know, there's the, you know, Philadelphia Palestinian Coalition, which is pretty wide ranging. And and also, I think um, we've seen uh, labor unions be a little bit more um, upfront about this issue, right? Like, I think the UAW had a statement recently talking about how uh, there needs to be a ceasefire, right? Mm -hmm. And how... Um, they connected that, what's really important, they connected that need for a ceasefire to their previous um, uh, advocacy for ending apartheid in South Africa and also uh, ending the war in, um, in Vietnam. Um, I think I think there's some other unions too, I believe, that were um, pretty- Yeah, 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 you got, it. yeah you got it exactly right. The UAW, United Auto Workers, issued a great statement. I suggest people search it on Google, it shouldn't be hard to find and read it, calling for a ceasefire. And then the other big name I remember was the American Postal Workers also did a similar thing. Right, right. Them. And uh, it, it just goes to show what you were saying earlier, that emphasizing international issues or domestic labor politics, it's a false dilemma. Right. We're seeing in those statements, we see both completely intertwined. Right, right. And and as as Marxists, right, we, we care about labor organizing for a couple of reasons, too. It's not just um, a moral reason you know, for our fellow workers who are suffering to get justice, it's because through labor organizing, you build leverage, right? It's withholding labor uh, is a way of really punishing the system. And so when you have 
labor unions, massive ones, like you mentioned, and the UAW trying to do this kind of work, hopefully down the road, one day you can see them striking not only for wages, but they can also be striking against uh, sending bombs to Israel or to Saudi Arabia. And, that, and that's a really, really big part of the strategy, I feel like. I, I don't know if, uh, if you want to add to that or if you feel no, 100%, like- 100%, 100%. I, I don't really like anecdotes because the common saying goes, anecdotes aren't evidence. But what you just said about people oh, striking mm. for Palestine did remind me of a story. I, a friend of mine, his, I won't say names, right, his right. brother, not to self-report, maybe my own class position, but his brother uh, has Airbnbs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one day from one of the ladies who comes in and cleans his place that she would not be working that day. She's striking for Palestine. Now, I don't know if that upset him, if it did channel yeah, that guy right. to her. And I think those sorts of spontaneous mobilizations, if done collectively, if we can organize people to do stuff like that, can create a tidal wave. And, and us being both of us, we live right in the imperial court, in the belly yeah. of the beast. We are in a unique position to put pressure on the governments who are enabling these atrocities. Right. Uh, no, I think that's a, you're right to say anecdotes, but also it's, it is like, I saw also Starbucks workers. I mean, they're having their own fight to still be, I think, um, accepted as union or acknowledged as, as having union representation by Starbucks. But in the midst of that, I believe they had days of solidarity with Palestine. Right. So it's, 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 it's coming through here and there. And it's really quickly, I think it's, a, people shouldn't um, diminish any of that because for at least the last couple of decades, to be really honest, uh, the labor union mainstream has been kind of shying away from foreign policy. Um, even though I'm a DSA person, I believe Michael Harrington, one of the co-founders of DSA, was very big on shying away on certain foreign policy dilemmas and was very into the AFL-CIO, even though they kind of solely became the AFL-CIA for promoting right-wing trade unions. So I, I'm just referring to that because what we're seeing is different. It is different. You know, and it's something that we have to sort of acknowledge as different and as as good rather than having it sink back into like, oh, nothing's really working or nothing's going to happen. And um, and I do want to ask also like, and oh, yeah, for everyone in the chat. So we're going to be on for another maybe 15, 20 minutes. Um, if people want to like right now type some questions, I'm going to do my best to get two to three questions for Elias and us to answer uh, and not saying we'll be able to answer them, but I'd really love to hear if anyone has any uh, questions and if they want to do that, type that in the chat right now. Uh, and so for the next 10, for the next five minutes, uh, five to eight minutes, uh, if people want to do that, uh, I'll keep monitoring that while we kind of slowly wrap up. Um, Could I build you, on something you said right before? Oh yeah, that? go for it. Okay, thank you so much. I, I just want to focus on, on what Sadiq said there. He's right. The current mobilizations in favor of Palestine that are happening, right. let's just focus on the U.S., happening in the U.S., are unique. And I remember the last time we saw mobilizations for Palestine was, I believe, May of 2021. Mm. It launched its yeah. last offensive in Gaza. Mm -hmm. That was nothing compared to what we're seeing now. Nothing. Right. right. And that came and went so quickly. Right. This has endured. And uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not in the business of selling false hope, but it does provide some reason for optimism, I think. Yeah. And I guess to that effect, too, it's important to because what you said earlier about the 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 crisis, too, right, that like, again, what you said, the reason why U.S. foreign policy has to be stopped is because of what's going on in Gaza and Yemen and other places like it's it's very depraved. It's, it's 
terrible. And I do want to relate, like, again, we're not out here trying to sell false hope. Um, and I, we'll, we'll, again, land on some positive notes here. But I also want to emphasize what you said earlier, because what is happening in Gaza is truly uh, abhorrent and, and terrifying. Um, and, and not to be emotional about it, but, you know, there's a lot of videos out there, you know, like of what's going on with Palestinians. I, I think I referred to one with you when we did a rundown of the show preparing for it that I wanted to bring up. But there's like a lot of, let's say, evidence out there of what the Palestinians are going through. Um, not only are people dying, uh, you have also people buried under rubble. And not just that, for the few survivors, they're either being pushed away from Gaza. I don't know if they'll ever be let back when this ends. And why would they? Like, who's going to allow them to rebuild unless it's settlers coming in? But also, there's all these Palestinians being um, traumatized, right? I mean, literally, there's videos. I, I remember watching one video where literally uh, uh, there was a father running around in the hospital and um, in Gaza. Um, I think it was his little girl. She... I, to be honest, I, I can't really say if she was had already passed on, but she, eventually the video shows him laying her on the floor, and then, you know, he was just pleading for someone to help her. And it's a pretty common video now, but a popular video in a sense. Like you could see that her, she was bleeding from the back of her head, and she'd passed. And I and I'm saying this not to bring down the mood, but just to sort of really be honest here, because I think there's also, I think re, I I know everyone in this chat really understands what's going on and how depraved it is. Um, but it's just a, I don't want to say healthy reminder, but a necessary reminder of the stakes of this to what you said. Like we're talking about that father might survive. I'm not sure. He, he may not perish. He may have other children, still a wife or whomever, but he will never, ever be the same. Mm -hmm. He'll never be the same. He's, yeah. he, he lost his daughter in the worst way, in the, in the worst unfathomable way. Like he literally was screaming desperate for someone to help him. And no one could because everyone was busy with other people. So again, U.S. foreign policy is leading to this. Right? They're, they're, Kissingerism is this. Kissingerism is literally the idea that some people's lives are not worthy, right? Whether it be Chilean, American too, but Chilean, American, or Gazan, right? Or Iraqi, right? To to the earlier earlier point, the war criminals in American tradition have been rehabilitated. And we're seeing that too again and again, like John Bolton, a, a psycho, literally because he's anti-Trump one day of his life, he was given some time, you know, on mainstream press to talk about his feeling that Trump is disloyal. And Trump himself is a problem. He moved the capital of Israel to Jerusalem, all of it. Mm -hmm. So they're all the problem, but like same with Biden. Biden. I mean, how? I mean, what? What? How would you describe Biden's, or how would you rate Biden's foreign policy? Like, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> horrible, horrible. Yeah. I remember early on in his presidency, I remember a significant number of progressives giving him a lot of credit because drone strikes went down a lot on no, his watch. No. And uh, I think, I think we should be careful not to give him too much credit. We actually have a a piece coming out in Hampton that, that mentions mm. this exact thing, but I'll sort of restate it here. Those imperial projects where the drones were being fired were winding down anyway. It wasn't like Biden, who spent his whole career advocating for war all right. over the globe, became a peacenik overnight. Not at all. Right. Far cry from that. Right. And, and what's proven that is the fact that he's aiding and abetting a genocide right. in Palestine right now. 
Right. He's not reformed. Mm. It was just that the imperial machine was bringing those projects to an end anyway. Anyway, it was just good timing, honestly. Right. Good luck, better than anything. Not good policy making. And uh, what even what proves that even more is drone strikes went down somewhere in the region of 95 percent mm. from Trump to Biden. And by the way, from Obama to Trump, they went right. down about the same amount. Oh, okay. Those wars were just coming to an end. <laughs> right. And, and in the last year before the withdrawal of Afghanistan, uh, something progressives also give Biden credit for, there were exactly zero U.S. service members killed. The war was over. The damage was done. Right. He was just sort of picking up the pieces and leaving. That's it. So what do I give him on foreign policy? Why not an F if we're going to go letter grades? I can't think of anything better. Well, also, I think we talked about this earlier, but what about the other progressives or faux progressives like uh, Fetterman? Um, you know, do you want to? Because I have some thoughts, but I was wondering what are your thoughts about him and, and even Bernie Sanders, too? Well, it's funny you bring up John Fetterman because I recently he said he's not even a progressive at all. He's just an yeah. ordinary Democrat, whatever that right. means. But he did use to claim that mantle. You're exactly he right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of progressives, progressives were excited about him when he first ran. You can even find and they were clear eyed about him in, in certain aspects, honestly, to their credit, especially with regard to his position on Israel, Palestine. But they right. were excited about him. You can find pieces complimenting John Fetterman while he was running for office and Jacobin of all places. Right. Well, right. he's totally aligned with the Israeli far right and supports mm-hmm. genocide. But maybe Fetterman's a bad example, right? Because he doesn't even call himself a progressive anymore. What about Bernie, as you mentioned? Right. Funny. Full disclosure, and maybe the same is true of you. We're DSA members, so yeah. this isn't too surprising. We voted for, I voted for Bernie in 2020. I right. voted for him in 2016. I wasn't old enough. You probably could have guessed that I voted for Bernie. But you know what's funny? If you go on his social media, and this goes back to what we were saying earlier about grassroots engagement, on every post, Instagram, Twitter, and posting isn't life, I know that. It's not politics. Still, it's not a bad proxy for what I'm about to say. Right. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, his posts all flooded with replies, call for a ceasefire burning. Yeah. He won't, he refuses. Bodies dropping by the tens of thousands. The vast majority, women and children, mm-hmm. he won't call for a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. His followers are literally begging him, even on posts and statements that have nothing to do with Palestine whatsoever. It's right. disappointing to say the least, because until recently, as you know, and I'm sure the people listening at home know, People saw Bernie as a leader on this issue yes. Israel-Palestine right. before the current offensive. To his credit, right? I'm not right. taking this away from him. He was the lone voice in the Senate calling for conditioning USA to Israel, right? right. And that was insufficient even at the time. You right. still have to give him some credit. He was the only one in the Senate, at least. There were some in the House. Here's the problem. That's still, to this day, December 20th, the year of our Lord, 2023, <laughs> still mm-hmm. the extent of what he's calling for. is right. not going further. And let's ask the question, what on earth is conditioning aid going to do in the middle of a genocide? Stop the bloodshed. It's the only solution that means ceasefire now. And as far as I'm concerned, maybe you can't endorse this statement. If you're not, this is one of those instances where words really matter. It's Mm -hmm. one of those instances. If you're not using the word ceasefire, you're on the wrong side of history. So get on board. And yeah, that's what I have to say about Fetterman and Bernie. That's. I mean, you're right. I mean, for me, too, I, I fell for it. I mean, I don't live in PA, so I didn't vote for Fetterman. That's one good thing. But um, I did sort of remember being sort of happy that he won. Like, I wasn't really listening now when I think about the critiques. I wasn't listening, to be really honest. I think 
good thing to admit is self-critique and I did not listen enough. Um, but I, me- I remember seeing some of his statements about China. I think he was like, some of the warning signals came up in my head about who this man was, was when he, I think one time mentioned that we should also prevent foreign nationals who are like opposed to the United States, like Chinese nationals from owning land here. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a weird signal. But then everything came apart with, uh, with this, right? Like he is draped himself uh, in the right-wing politics of Israel. He, uh, he does a lot to make fun of people who are, you know, even veterans of previous wars who've, who've done like, you know, actions uh, in front of the, I think Congress, National Congress uh, about this issue, calling for a ceasefire. There's a lot of veterans who are not for these wars, right? A lot of veterans though, to be honest, they do become recruited right into the right wing. And that's another reason why imperialism has to stop because it creates monsters, mm-hmm. right? It creates literally the feeding, feeding tube, the feeding ground for right wing extremism. Right. But a lot of veterans do take on the approach of peace and ceasefires like this because they, they've seen what wars can do. He, he mocks them. I remember one video of him was like he was waving a, a tiny Israeli flag while some veterans were being arrested for staging a protest outside the Congress building, I think, or Senate building. Um, but, yeah, he's just deplorable in many ways in terms of his uh, thinking on this and how he also makes it always about himself. I think he also, you know, and it, it also speaks to the progressive movement sometimes falling prey to identity politics of another type. Like we like to talk about, you know, identity, liberal politics about race and gender. But I remember, you know, his, his sweatshirt thing. Like I remember him like, I'm not going to wear suits or he's making fun of Dr. Oz for liking a certain food. I mean, whatever. But when you look back at it, you just think like, oh my God, like, why did we care about this? Like, why did I care about this? And cause he's just terrible. And, but like you said, I think Sanders is more of a heartbreak situation. Like, like you said, I think it's really important you did raise the fact that he was that significant voice because I think that's what, I don't want to say tricked, but really brought people along, you know, to his side. And again, he did take positions about Kashmir, India's occupation of Kashmir. He actually staked a position on that too. So I I was very taken in, but now this is just getting to a point of like, yeah, like you're saying, you're conditioning conditioning aid. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. Like, what are you, what are you saying? Like you, there needs to be an actual democratic, secular nation state in that region where people aren't being murdered for being Palestinian or any group, and everyone has equal rights. And it's actually eventually a socialist republic, not this place where literally people are being pushed out in the hundreds of thousands, or rather told to go to the south where they're bombed, told to go into the middle of the country or in the middle of the strip bombed, uh, going back to the north getting bombed like we're talking about also refugee camps being hit and bernie has been i think he did say ceasefire i don't know like there's a tweet he i saw recently but it's so late like that's the other thing it's just like this is thousands and thousands of people have been murdered and you're now mentioning it like like scattering it in a way where you're not even sure if that's what you're calling for mm-hmm. you know so I, I don't know but i i i'm i'm very very disappointed honestly, with uh, Bernie's reaction to this and his failure to respond. Agreed, agreed. And one thing I will say, uh, leftists in America are often very critical of European leaders, and rightfully so. Yeah. Criticisms to be made, no doubt. But I think it's really telling that if Bernie says ceasefire now, good, I give him some credit for that. But like you said, it's way too late. And it's even long after Emmanuel Macron 
who's no socialist. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Long after his call for a ceasefire. Right. You have the deputy prime minister of Belgium saying, forget just a ceasefire. We need to sanction Israel for what they're doing. I think it's very telling that the U.S. Wow. lies so far behind where even their progressive standard bearer right. is later, later to the party than even European centrists. Right. And center right in some sense, right? Like this is, you know, Macron we're talking about who's who's literally went to, I think, Napoleon's statue and said, yeah, he did a few things bad. And when, when people are criticizing Napoleon like I am, I'm not necessarily criticizing him going into the rest of Europe, whatever. It's more because he wanted to reinstitute, reinstitute slavery in Haiti. And Macron in light of this was like, ah, you know, yeah, he did some, you know, questionable ideas. So we're talking about that sort of figure on this issue ahead of some of our more most quote unquote left wing figures in the United States, right? So it's very disappointing. And, you know, to wrap up, like we have another maybe 10 minutes we want to, and again, please, if people have any questions, I think there's still time to answer them. But like, what would a US left foreign policy uh, look like to you? Like, you know, what would be some of its principles maybe, or how would you characterize it? Like an actual left wing foreign policy or a socialist one coming from the United States? No, that's a, that's a great question. And before I give an answer, I will preface by saying, I don't know if I have quite the mental horsepower to answer this question in detail. I'm not the type of guy who could craft policy. I'll leave that to the geniuses like you. I'm personally oh my more God. the guy. Jesus. One thing I will say, though, is in general, yeah, big picture, high level of generality, the United States should focus on making friends and not yeah. enemies. And that's actually, I think, maybe you disagree with me on this, we can have a discussion. I think that's actually going to serve U.S. interests better in the long run. And for all of its flaws, this is not an endorsement. I think China proves that. Right. They're building diplomatic influence primarily not through war and military aggression like the U.S. and other places do, but through peaceful trade partnership. There's one map I show people on a website called Visual Capitalist. Excuse the name. I know it's not the best for a <laughs> yeah. but it shows the map shows how many countries used to trade more with the United States and now trade more with China. And that, in my opinion, again, this is all my opinion, is quite literally the most important story of the past 40, 50 years. Yeah. Since 1980 or so, maybe even before that, China has built considerable, like them or not, they've built considerable global influence because of those trade partnerships, for better or worse. Right. And they're well on their way, again, for better or worse, to becoming the global superpower, if they haven't already. And by the way, this is something, I'm, this is some crazy lefty loony theory. Until recently, you could read takes like this in the Wall Street Journal, just to be clear. Right, right, right. Bill Maher, by the way, even said on his show not too long ago that he thinks China is the global superpower right now. We just haven't gotten all the receipts yet. That's him. Again, by no means. Right, it's right. Bill Maher, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bill Maher. <laughs> Those trade relationships China has built are both literally and figuratively paying dividends. The U.S. should make friends. Not yes. And also you did say one time in our discussions about this, like there are some institutions that exist now, right? Like globally that that we could sort of build off of, right? The uh, ICC, yeah. I believe. Uh, oh, 100. Yeah, yeah. The, the International Court of Justice, right? Send right. Dick Cheney to the Hague. People right. joke online and stuff. But I'll say this. It's promising that we have such an institution in the first place. Now, it's very politicized and underused, and we, yeah. we could get into all that maybe on another episode, right. but it's there. It's there. And as far as I'm concerned, that's positive. No, I I think it's important to, to add that because, again, I think 
you and I agree on this, like we're not advocating isolationism. Like left-wing policy traditionally has never really been, Marxism has not been isolationism, right? It's not been like, we need to retreat from the rest of the world. It's more about really truly building, like you said, cooperation for the purposes of something very different from what the United States has done. Like, again, back to the earlier points, which you and I have talked about, the United States has built an empire that's been successful for some of its interests and sometimes even not. Like, it, like, I think you said once that Kissinger has, like, the reverse Midas touch. Like, even though Kissinger is heralded as this, like, icon, even for the things he claims he's done, he's actually created a wake of disaster. Like, one of the really quick examples is the so-called, quote-unquote, uh, Islamist militancy that, that's sort of been now a problem in parts of the world. Like, uh, Kissinger helped create that. Like, the Middle East, um, part of the broader, quote-unquote, Muslim-majority world, were very much split between pan-Arab nationalism, which is extremely secular, like uh, Nasser in Egypt, to uh, the Communist Party in Indonesia, right behind the Soviets and China, the the country with the, the third largest number of communist members officially was Indonesia, a majority Muslim country. And some, you know, Muslims also grafted Marxism onto their theology, not saying it always worked, but they did that. And Kissinger hated that. You know, just like Netanyahu uh, didn't want to deal with Fatah or the PLO and rather deal with Hamas for a little bit, uh, that's that's the story of American hegemony too. So Kissinger created a world in which the left was repressed, different forms of nationalism that were secular were repressed, and even different forms of Islam that were more left-leaning were repressed uh, because he funded and helped out uh, these uh, quote-unquote right-wing Islamists instead. And this is the world that that part of the world is living with too, because they're they're being affected by it. So that's one thing to say, but um, but yeah, I just wanted to add that in the end, um, the United States policy has been to find allies, nonetheless. But these allies were never meant to create a healthy civil society. And that, and to your point, we we don't want to take the idea of taking allies away. We want to say a left wing policy would be hopefully about finding the right allies to create a healthy civil society. Not always they have to be socialist right away. Some of them could be progressive minded depending on the country and context, but we would rather have an actual connection to countries and their interests. And, and again, to what you're saying too, it would be for the sake of creating a more safer world for socialism, which would tie back to our own interests as a US economy that's socialist, right? So it, it does tie in to, to a different kind of interest nonetheless, but we want to have more leaning into our partnership in the world, not leaning away. And uh, another aspect of a left-wing policy is the institutional part. We want world institutions like the ICC to remain. And I think leftists should really think about addressing things through resources, like um, reparations even. Like Central America, even if they have socialists being elected there and remaining in power, these are areas of the world that have been gutted by us. And so we need to think through addressing those historical wrongs that can, that can really make them sustain socialism for the long term. See. Okay, now we're at 10, 20. I, I don't see any questions here. I do want to say everyone's been really great with their commentary. I know people have added a few things. I'm new to this, so I wasn't able to get everyone's comments on the screen. Uh, hopefully, we'll do another episode, and I'll be more able to do that. But I really, really uh, like some of the comments here. I don't see any questions, so I think we'll just sort of uh, um, wrap up in a way. Um, so yeah, so do you want to have any last words about, yeah, about Kissinger, how, how we... Uh, dismantle Kissingerism, maybe. But yeah, any last words? Uh, I'll just say, 
to, to repeat what I said earlier, I'm, I really am at bottom an, an optimist, even though people yeah. don't believe I am. They think I believe I'm, you are, but I'm yeah, bottom. yeah. <laughs> but I'm also not in the business of selling false hope. And this right. stuff runs deep. And I'm going to repeat something I said earlier on the show, just because it, it answers your question. The rot is the foreign policy establishment. We worded the title very deliberately. Right. It's a feature, not a bug. So nothing short of a full rehaul is going to solve this problem. I think that's obvious. And right. here's another point we made. Unfortunately, people who want a more peaceful, a more humane, a more progressive foreign policy, unfortunately, don't have a lot of allies in, in high places. Right. So I'm not saying one theory of change is better than another, but the way things are right now, we have to start from the bottom. The mm -hmm. promising thing to end on a positive note is that as we've been discussing, there is a significant level of grassroots engagement of public support for building that foreign policy we want to have a more peaceful, just, and humane world. Right. No, I 100% and just want to again thank the chat for staying on. I really hope people share this episode. Obviously, This Is Revolution is an amazing show. I thank Jason before I forget for having us guest host. You know, I really hope we do this again because I feel like I'm still very green on this. So I'm trying my best on being part of the conversation and also running the chat, I guess. Um, but yeah, Jason, you know, I thank him and his co-hosts for having us on. And just really quickly also, um, I just want to say this. This is the book I'm referencing, Kissinger's Shadow. This is a really short book. It's not that long. And um, in terms of the tradition of Marxism, really quickly, I have, I think this, these books are going to collapse on me, but I'll share this one. This one is um, called Organize, Fight, Win. This is a collection of Black women Marxists, progressives, who are aligned with socialism from the 1930s, 50s. This includes people like Claudia Jones. And the ideas I shared about internationalism being so important, they come from people like her. So I also want to, yes, it's Karl Marx, it's Lenin, it's Luxembourg, but it's also people like people like her who was, um, who was writing back then and was very clear about internationalism, both as a moral thing and strategically necessary. Um, and then finally, uh, Elias, if you don't mind, again, repeating a little bit about you know Hampton Institute and maybe some of your some of the other places where people can find your writing and your uh, yeah your Twitter right we want to get more followers for you oh sure I'll lead with the shameless plug for Hampton visit hamptonthink.org that's our website you can find our podcast there our monthly media aggregator left hook you can find the articles I was mentioning earlier and keep an eye on that because we have plenty of more content coming and we have a big 2024 ahead I want you guys to be a part of it so definitely definitely check on the website every so often Social media, Hampton Think on every platform, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and then my personal Twitter. If you'd like to follow me, you don't have to. First name, last name, zero, zero. That's my Twitter. Thank you guys very much. It's been a pleasure to be on. No, I, I really thank you for sharing your insights. I know you mentioned about, you know, you're not feeling like a scholar, but again, back to the Hampton Institute. Credo, you are a scholar, and I, I really enjoyed writing this piece with you, and I learned a lot with uh you know by writing this with you so i just want to say please follow elias uh please follow hampton institute they are amazing they do a lot of great work and they're just getting better and better um and just for me really quickly like i said um i do doctoral work uh i'm a nerd um but you can find my writings at places like the jacobin uh protein magazine as well and of course uh hampton institute um so with that i'll uh say so long. I'm going to try to find the outro here.
Uh, Jason told me where to find it. I think I found it. Yep. So uh, I'll see y'all uh, next time. Bye.